If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com backslash FPA. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. If you would like to earn continuing education credit for your FP&A certification from the Association of Finance Professionals for listening to the show, go to the show notes for details on how to earn the credit. Finally, if you enjoy listening to FP&A today, please go to your podcast platform of choice, click the subscribe button, and leave a rating and review of the show. And now, on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy. FPNA Today is brought to you by Data Rails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Parth Kulkarni. Parth, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Paul. Yeah, really excited to have you here with us. Let me just give a little bit about his background. He's coming to us from the Bay Area, San Jose, California. He's currently a director of finance at Adobe, and he studied engineering for his undergrad and business analytics for his MBA. So we're really excited to have him, has a great background. Why don't we start? We're going to start with a fun question, then we'll ask you to tell our audience about the background. So what has been the most challenging budgeting forecast experience you've had in your career? I think when I think about the most challenging experience, I, I see it a little bit differently. And in the past decade or so, you know, every every year in every role that I've been in, I think has, you know, kind of thrown unique challenges my way. And frankly, that's what I've really enjoyed, you know. Uh, whether it was my time in the e-commerce, in the e-commerce space, merchandising and the shipping businesses, or in the ever-changing, you know, uh, the SaaS and the technology space, uh, where, where, you know, I was playing, I was in the role of God finance or cloud finance or business finance. I think each one of them has its own, you know, tough spots, right? And it was, it was challenging or exciting from things like, you know, changes in the industry or, you know, macro trends or the uncertainties that were introduced by the recent pandemic, uh, or the technology disruptions that happens every now and then, or the competitive pressures that you start seeing from your competitors. I think it's or the shifts in how the customers behave. I think there is so much change that happens over a period of time, and you have to incorporate that into your planning and budgeting exercise, which I think makes it a super, super interesting. And I'll just, you know, kind of maybe share one example. In one of the roles I was in previously, you know, when I was in the shipping FP&A team, I got to manage the P&L for a shipping labels business from a finance perspective, right? And if you if you imagine this job was almost at like the intersection of a marketplace economy, complex supply chains, you know, which could be completely messed up by geopolitical disruptions, you know, working with with all the, the logistics vendors out there and negotiating the contracts. And of course, you know, online shopping and e-commerce. And then, of course, it, it also used to involve, you know, financial forecasting around all of these different parameters. So you can you can imagine a job like that, which is at the intersection of so many different things. It, it was a challenge from a planning and budgeting perspective, but it was really, really, really exciting. Thank you. And it sounds like you've definitely had some different challenges, you know, complexity and different things for those budgeting experiences. So appreciate you sharing that. Can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Just tell us a little bit more of how you ended up where you're at and you know, kind of that journey from engineering to FP&A. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I, I, I did my undergrad in engineering. So I'm a, I'm a 
I'm what they call as Bachelor of Technology uh, in Instrumentation and Controls Engineering. That's what I did my BTEC in. And while I really benefited, you know, from the experience that I gained uh, while doing undergrad in engineering, you know, whether it be from a problem-solving perspective or structured thinking perspective or the analytical skills, I did feel that I wanted to kind of explore career opportunities that aren't necessarily related to core engineering, right? I, I was really inclined more towards roles uh, you know, that are business facing or client facing, but related to technology, but having some flavor of, you know, kind of marketing or communications involved in them. I knew I was, you know, kind of good at quant. So I believed I could make use of those skills, but I, I hadn't really thought about finance or FPNA at all. In fact, I, if I recall it correctly, I wasn't even aware that FPNA was a function that, that existed, right? So it kind of then happened just organically that I, that I got campus placement in a decision sciences consulting firm, which was based, you know, which is headquartered in Chicago and had offshore operations out of Bangalore, India. So while I did not fully, you know, kind of understand at that time what decision science meant, I really liked the pitch that this organization made to the students on our campus. And I felt like it was a lot closer to what I was wanting to do. So, you know, I accepted that offer and I worked at this firm for a, for a little more than about two years. I learned a lot, you know, during this time. That's That, that was my introduction in the space of business analytics, decision science, uh, which is a lot that I carry with me even today. While I was enjoying doing all of that, I, I kind of decided to take it to the next level and decided to pursue my master's in, in analytics. And that's when I moved to the U.S. back in back in 2014. Um, and fast forward, you know, upon completion of my master's degree, I joined eBay. I actually interned with them during the summer. And then I, I went back and worked with them and then was, you know, kind of at eBay for about four years, worked in, you know, the different parts of the FPNA organization, did a variety of different roles, was always a part of the a part of the finance and analytics organization. And that's where I was really introduced to, uh, you know, FPNA. Just so did a bunch of variety of different roles in FPNA, whether it be, you know, from a product and technology perspective or from a business FPNA standpoint or from a strategic finance perspective. Uh, you know, investments and new business opportunity assessments. So a lot of the FP&A kind of work started happening really when I was at eBay. Um, and in 2019, you know, then I, I, I moved to, uh, to Adobe and have been here since then, you know, have really enjoyed my time, uh, working with a great set of folks, uh, that I get to work with and have worked, have been able to work on some really cool stuff here as well. So I, I, I've been a part of the consolidations FPNA team, have been a part of the corp FPNA team, cloud finance, and currently I'm playing more like the strategic finance and the business FPNA role. To, to get back to the question that you asked, I think it's my journey has been a dynamic one, which early on included like a shift from engineering to, to finance, uh, and then kind of a gradual progression from, you know, analytics to FPNA. But, but it, it's been an exciting one. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing a little bit about that background. And look, so I have a follow up question here for you. You know, you hinted at it a little bit, but you earned your undergrad in engineering, but never worked in engineering. You started your career in analytics. So help me understand a little bit of the thought process because from our conversations we had, you never really, at least toward the end of schooling, never planned on working in engineering. So why kind of finish a degree and what was the, what was the thinking there? As I kind of, you know, mentioned earlier in the, you know, in, in the prior, in the prior segment, one of the primary motivations behind why I decided to pursue an undergrad in engineering was because I've always kind of had a liking towards maths and science, right? And that was the reason. And when I say uh, I had a liking for science, it was it was just the different, you know, kind of, the, you know, the, the fundamental branches of science, like physics, chem or biology, and not just not just the fundamental 
uh, branches, but actually the scientific method of thinking that goes behind engineering, right? Engineering trains you to think in a very structured and hypothesis-driven way of trying to solve a problem at hand. And that's what really kind of got me into the into the engineering space to begin with. But while I was going through my coursework, you know, what, what I was quickly realizing is I was gravitating towards courses that involved analyzing data or economics or decision making. So, you know, I started taking elective courses in, eco- in economics and statistics, and I really started to like what I was learning. Right. So I, I could see myself applying this knowledge in, in, in the real world. So during my fourth and final year of undergrad, when I when I started applying for jobs, I was I was keeping a lookout for jobs that are more business and management or economics related. And that's when I stumbled upon analytics or decision sciences, right? And as a field. And I really liked it. I could see the connection between my quant skill sets and its application to the real world coming through, you know, via 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 the field that I'm in right now, which is analytics and finance. And that's why I decided to pursue that. So I would say the transition from engineering to analytics was based on the same foundation that I joined engineering with, which is leveraging quant, leveraging problem-solving skills that you learn in engineering, but applying them to a field that gives you a lot more exposure you know, to, to business and technology, which is what I, I love to. That's how I would kind of think about why engineering and why the transition to, to finance and analytics made, made sense in my mind. Thank you. I appreciate you walking through that. And that makes a lot of sense. Which kind of leads me to our next question. So you spent several years as a data analyst, decision support. You earned your MBA in analytics. So talk a little bit more about how having that background helps you as an FP&A professional. You've kind of made that shift a little bit more to FP&A. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think for, you know, uh, to, to start with, the A in the FP&A is, is analysis, right? So it's, it's related to analytics. So, you know, exploring a career in FP&A after having worked in analytics and decision sciences for a few years was, was I think, in my mind, a great option or is a great option for all the analytics professionals, all the decision scientists out there. And, and one which I, I believe, you know, felt extremely seamless, at least for me, right, than what I originally imagined. Because when I was making this transition, I, I had this going in the back of my mind on, hey, I'm not from core finance, you know, I'm, I've, not, I've not earned my accounting degree, you know, how am I really going to fit within the finance space? And this was a couple of years back, right? But but when I moved into the FP&A space, like I almost felt at home, right? Because what you're doing is you are kind of doing pure play analytics, but you're doing it for a different, in a different kind of a construct, where in your, you're in the, you know, you're, you're leading kind of the, the budgeting and planning processes. You're doing a lot of, uh, you know, strategic finance, which, which has a huge component of analytics involved in it, right? So while there are challenges, of course, when you, when you make a career transition from one field to the other, that is slightly different in its scope. I think it, it, it can definitely, you know, be achieved. But to be honest, you know, I had to spend a lot of time building my core finance skills as well, because that definitely was something that I had to kind of build and develop because I didn't originally come from that space, right? So I took online courses, you know, whether it be in basic accounting, fundamentals of corporate finance, and I continue to do that even today, to be honest, to, to kind of continue to expand my knowledge and understanding of the domain. But on the other hand, I think what helped me was having this really strong foundation in data analysis and problem solving. So I could see the two kind of coming together uh, and helping helping me kind of become a decently successful FPNA professional, right? And I believe that there are five pillars to become a successful FPNA professional. Like that's what I've kind of learned over the last decade or so. I think the first one is having the strong business acumen. The second one is having a good intuition about the data that you're looking at. 
The third one is, I think, being able to tell a great story. The fourth, of course, is, you know, having the right skill sets, whether from a finance or from a technology perspective. And then the last one, I think, is, is business partnering. If someone has spent, you know, a reasonable amount of time in the field of analytics and decision science, it's more likely than not that you would have great exposure to at least four out of these five pillars, maybe except for the core finance skills, right? So given the huge overlap between what makes a successful FP&A professional and what makes a successful analytics professional, I think it is a very natural or it's a very organic transition that one can have going from pure play analytics into, into FP&A. And hence, I, you know, I think that that's how I think about my transition. And hopefully that kind of sheds some light on the question that you asked as well. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. And it makes sense to me. There is a lot of overlap between the two, like you mentioned, FP&A. You'll see more and more many CFOs put analytics under finance in companies, right? It's rolling up to the CFO. At a minimum, they should be working closely together. And there are definitely areas where the roles intertwine and overlap. Like you mentioned, storytelling, huge one, you know, visualizing data. All those things are really needed. There's a reason they're both analyst type roles. So there's, I can see a lot of areas. So, you know, what I want to ask you next is prior to the episode, you and I have had the opportunity to chat. And I remember specifically you mentioning that in your view, finance has a more solid seat at the table from kind of your experiences and things you've seen. Why is that? Talk, talk about that, that perspective. Absolutely. And I think the way that I would answer that question, Paul, is, is kind of reflecting back on the thought process I had playing in my mind when I went through the transition myself, right? If we start by just, you know, understanding the two functions, finance or, you know, or FP&A and analytics, while there are a lot of, I would say, you know, commonalities between the two, like the ones we discussed previously, I think there are some differences and some really critical differences between the, the roles, between the role of these functions, you know, in, in any organization. And, you know, of course, there are there are caveats and, and, and exceptions to the opinion that I'm going to share. Don't worry, we'll put a label on the episode that says this is Parth's opinion, subject to dispute. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Thank you. But what I think is finance is more uh, what I think of as a, as a core business function, right? Meaning every organization, whether a startup or, or an established organization, would have some form of finance function existing within the organization. Even for startups, you know, as soon as they have had some sort of a product market fit and they have witnessed a good, you know, kind of a reception amongst their customer base, they begin to march towards, you know, growth and expansion. And they almost, and that almost naturally kind of requires starting to build out a finance function. You know, it might just be an accounting function at the start, but you do see a finance team taking shape, right? Analytics as a standalone function, I do feel is still a kind of a luxury that some companies do and some companies don't seem to be able to afford. I think that's the number one key difference. The second one, I think, is the more I see how these fields are evolving, data analysis and data-driven decision-making, you know, skills and scope, which were, you know, kind of historically something that was only possessed by or only the pure analysts or the pure play analytics or analytics professionals used to have these skill set and they used to be tasked with that as their primary primary role within the organization. But the more I see that, it's now becoming like a core skill set across all the functions and particularly even in the finance function. So that's, I think, the second reason why I think that finance, now that it, it, it has this core skill set of, you know, analytics and data-driven decision-making, it's almost doing the job to a certain extent of what a business analytics function would do as a standalone function. I think the third one, the third reason why I feel that, you know, finance has a core seat at the table is 
again, you know, particularly the SPA and the strategic finance unit, they play a very active role in, you know, being the drivers and the influencers of any strategic decision making that happens in the organization. So whether it be PNL management, you know, operating plans, rolling plans, financial planning, you know, investment planning, new business, you know, opportunity assessments, name it. Trying to balance, you know, growth and profit profitability for the organization, finance usually takes the driver's seat across these work streams, right? And analytics, on the other hand, are critical parts of that of that puzzle, but they usually have a more contained role and scope of how they get involved in those work streams. And I think the primary reason for this is the stakeholder exposure and management that finance gets as part of their role is very different than what analytics functions get as a part of their role. And lastly, you know. You, you spoke about how how the teams kind of roll up within the within the CFO's organization. So although the chain of leadership and the reporter structure, you know, reporting structure shouldn't really matter in any organization, the reality is that finance has a C-suite representation across every organization. And, and as you can imagine, having the C-suite representation brings a lot of credibility, a lot of expertise in business and finance operations and decision-making process. While on the other hand, you know, the analytics function sometimes reports in the product team, sometimes in the business team, sometimes in the technology team, and sometimes even in the finance team, depending on the scope and mandate, you know, that they are tasked with. So some of these and a, and a lot more reasons is why I believe, I think, both functions are great, by the way. I came from analytics, so I love, I, I, lo- I love that function. But I think that's, that's some of the reasons which I shared is what makes, you know, finance have a little more a solid seat at the table than, than just a pure play analytics function would. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that uh, thorough explanation there. And I think what you said makes sense. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop. Breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, Intercompany transactions, now automated and up-to-date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FP&A machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. It's clear in your career, you felt like you've had a seat at the table in different roles. But what would be the advice you'd offer to an FP&A professional that feels like they don't have a seat at the table, like they need to earn it? Any any advice you'd offer them around maybe things they should be doing or how to go about making sure they get that seat at the table? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a great question. I think the role of FP&A in today's context is something we need to kind of better understand to be able to answer that question, right? If we take a step back and just, you know, think through some of the macro trends that we're living in, I think there is there are some distinct trends that we see developing. One, from a macro perspective, you know, we do see the business landscape kind of changing quite significantly. 
So businesses are becoming more globalized. They're becoming more digitally connected. And you see these advancements in market disruptions happening at an extremely rapid pace that we, we haven't seen before, right? So there is a, there is an increased sense of competition and industries are, you know, that industries are facing. So every organization is now trying to kind of drive strategic growth, but also trying to be really operationally efficient at the same time. There is a rapid pace, you know, of, you know, technology innovation, you know, chat GPT and, you know, conversational AI, you know, you can hear these kind of technology disruptions happening all the time. So there is an abundance of this data that is being created and stored, which is, you know, if we think about it, is leading all companies to be wanting to make, wanting to become better at data driven and agile decision making. Now that we've kind of spoken about like the context of the macro environment, let's understand what this means for FPA. Because companies are looking for FPA professionals who I think possess a combination of three skills. One, analytical, because, you know, that's, that's a core part of the job. Second, technical, because, right, you know, given the, the increased amount of data that exists in companies and, you know, one just has to be technologically, I think, proficient to be able to be successful in this kind of a role. And the third one, of course, is the finance skills. Right. So every organization is looking for an FPA professional who can play like a strategic role instead of just an operational role. And the silos that probably, you know, existed before are collapsing. Right. And including finance functions, every function is now needing to be more collaborative. You know, and the kind of ex- output that is being expected out of the FPA team is more predictive in nature than, you know, just being descriptive. Or, you know, kind of look back kind of kind of output, right? So there's a greater than ever ever before stress on FPNA delivering the impact and insights versus versus just reporting. So coming back to your question on what an FPNA professional needs to do to earn a seat at the table if they don't have one, is to maybe reflect on how they are supporting the vision mission, you know, of, of the company that, that that they're in and where the company is heading towards and how can they help the organization through their work. I believe that FPA does have a seat at the table, but it's just that the FPA professionals need to own the outcome of the contributions that they are making to the organization as well. I really like the last part there that you said that really stuck with me as listening to that is you're right, owning the outcome. We have a responsibility there that that's really important to look at and to do that self-assessment and figure out why it's not happening and what you need to change because the role if done properly, and I'd say in some companies, it's still viewed a little bit more of as a reporting role. But if the role structured properly, by the nature of the role, you should have a seat at the table. So you need to ask yourself, why don't I have that? Is it company isn't structured right? And if it's not going to change and you want a seat at the table, then you probably need to go find another job. And if it is structured in such a way that the function has a seat at the table, then what do you need to change that you're not doing so you don't have a seat at the table? You got to figure out what what company are you in? Are you in company A or company B? And then from there, you got to figure out what's the role I want to have and how does that fit and make your decision. I've been in some companies where there wasn't an appetite to make that change to really give FP&A a seat at the table. And right, I've seen some roles where that's the case. And it's like, all right, well, I, I could be doing great analysis and pushing and making a difference in some ways. But if they don't want me there, I'm limited, right? There's only so much you can do as an individual. And that's absolutely right, Paul, because I, I have seen those kind of examples as well, right? Like I have seen, it all depends on what is the role of the fp team in the organization. Are we just talking about an fp team, but which is not really fp but which is like a reporting function? 
Or are we really talking about an FP&A team that has a more strategic role in the organization, right? And not just an operational role. I think if you're working in an organization which has which has an FP&A team that has that has that strategic role and the organization acknowledges the value that you know FP&A team can drive through the insights that it can deliver, I think then you're at a great place, right? And you can do, you know, you can you can contribute a lot to the growth of the company through your work. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, there are a lot of companies out there which which still look at finance as purely a reporting function. You know, they're just looking for the quarter close reports or the month end reports. Uh, so they're looking only for that kind of support from their finance teams. There, I definitely do feel that it's going to be a lot more kind of limiting to how much value you can add through your work. I mean, of course, all of the things that I mentioned about quarter close and month, you know, month end reporting is absolutely critical to what we do as a finance team. But there is something that goes beyond that operational kind of responsibilities to being able to add strategic value to the business. And if you're, uh, if the company that you're in is ready to embrace that, you're in a great place. Totally agree. And one way I really like to uh, think of about is I'll say, if you're in the first one where the focus is reporting and they don't want strategic, you're doing FP&R, financial planning and reporting. If you want to do FP&A, go find a different organization because the analysis are, at least for me and for many people, that's where the strategy takes place. That's where a lot of the rewarding parts of the job take place. Not to say they can't come in the planning phase, and obviously they should, or even reporting. There can be some rewarding and great things from that, but it's not the holistic role if you're missing that. And it also goes back to what you enjoy, right? I mean, there are some people who have met in my career on who really just, you know, enjoy the reporting part, like, you know, building great dashboards and reporting, you know, reporting on the business performance. And that's fantastic because if that's, if that's what you really like, and that's what you want to be able to kind of, uh, you know, contribute to in terms of, you know, your contribution to the company. I think then that's that's a fantastic place to be in. But when I think about what I, you know, kind of as we spoke about earlier, I want to be able to kind of contribute to the growth of the business through my ideas, through the hypothesis that I have around the different, you know, business problems that exist out there. So there you need that strategic, you know, the company to embrace that strategic inputs from the FP&A team. Yep. And like you said, there are definitely different roles in as there's a reason I've always been business unit FP&A as much as I can in my career versus corporate FP&A, because I want to be out there making the decisions with the business versus rolling up all the financials. Nothing wrong with rolling them up. It needs to be done. It can be a great job, just not the best fit for my personality. And so I'm completely, you have to understand those things. So I think that's been a great conversation. Let's shift gears here a little bit. You know, you've held several different roles in FP&A at Adobe. Today, you are leading a finance team supporting the first product-led growth-based product at Adobe. So tell us a little bit about that and kind of that experience, because I'm sure that's quite a journey for Adobe to be launching a product like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think before we get into the details of uh, of this, uh, I would love to maybe just you know share a little bit to, the, to, to our listeners of the podcast and what this acronym PLG is. So it basically stands for product-led growth, right? Which is a type of a go-to-market strategy that has picked up over the last, I would say, five to six year, years-ish. You know, I won't go into the depth of what what that is, but uh, I would highly encourage, you know, every every single FP&A and a finance and, and finance professionals listening into this podcast to 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 read up uh, on this if they don't know about this already. So coming back to the question that you asked, uh, I currently do lead a team for, for Adobe Express, which is, you know, an offering that Adobe launched at the start of uh, 2022 and continues to build on in a significant way. And the way that we decided to kind of continue to optimize different parts of the customer journey that, you know, for this particular product is by adopting 
product-led growth as a GTM strategy. And what it means uh, from an FP&A perspective is I think it was a fantastic opportunity for us to for me and my team to kind of reimagine the way that we approached financial planning and, and supported the business. So, you know, when we think about financial planning, FPNA usually has a model that forecasts, uh, you know, top line and expenses. And that's usually what, you know, becomes the core or the, the significant component of the financial planning exercise. And while there are always, you know, these caveats, uh, there, there would always be caveats. I think FPNA models tend to focus mostly on financial metrics, which we tend to forecast based on, based on historicals. In this case, the reason I like this opportunity so much is we actually had the opportunity to adopt a completely different approach to planning and model building. So we took a much more, I would say, like a bottoms up approach in our modeling, starting with, you know, building forecasts and projections around every single critical upstream metric, whether it be, you know, acquisitions related or whether it be from an engagement perspective to the customer, like how are customers really engaging with the product or what kind of conversion rates are we seeing in, in the product itself or what kind of retention, you know, is, are we seeing uh, for this particular product? So it was a completely, I would say, instead of purely being based on historicals and purely being based on just the trends that we see from a top line standpoint, this is a place where I got the opportunity to actually understand the customer journey, translate that into a financial model, and then build my financial planning around that. And it required a lot of cross-functional teams. You know, we first, you know, kind of uh, partnered with multiple different teams to define the KPIs or the key performance indicators, you know, that we believed would be critical to monitor, measure, optimize, uh, to be able to drive like a superior, you know, customer experience. And since then, you know, we've tried to kind of establish a relationship between the upstream metrics all the way down to how does it translate into revenue and AR, right? Or even expense for that matter. So now all of a sudden, you know, the FPNA team is now closely, you know, kind of monitoring the customer success metrics as part of the core financial model and, and you know, subsequently trying to kind of forecast financials versus having it solely rely on historical data, having the financial sol solely rely on historical data to predict, you know, the future scenarios. That's been my experience, you know, kind of supporting a PLG-led product here, here at Adobe. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. What I want to ask about next is just insights. I know from our conversations, you love deriving insights out of data, but how do you think about that? How do you go about analyzing data to find those insights? Do you have a framework or an approach that you use that helps you find insights from data? Because I think it's a challenge many of us face. I think some of it goes back to, you know, what we what we discussed earlier as well, right? I think there are four pillars to kind of becoming an effective FPNA professional. You know, one is the business acumen, there is the intuition or the analytical skills, there is the data sources and you know the technology aspect in that role, and there is the storytelling. If I were to think of this through the lens of, you know, a framework, as you kind of asked, there is, there is a framework that I had, you know, kind of I have used at the very start of my, of my career, you know, when I was working at the decision sciences organization, it is what is, is referred to as the SCQA framework, right? So the situation, the, the complications, the questions and the answer framework which was uh, you know, developed by, I forget the name of that person now, but it was basically a management consultant who was, if I'm not mistaken, working with McKinsey who developed this framework, which I believe can come really handy in being able to have a structured or a structured problem-solving approach, right? And I won't go into you know, too many details about what the framework is, but it provides, I would say, a logical structure for deriving insights and being able to present information making it super easy for the audience to understand and engage with that content. 
So if we were to briefly touch on this framework or any other framework or approach like this, I think it is imperative for an analyst or FP&A professional to, to kind of really understand what is the business problem at hand that they're trying to solve in the context of the current state of the business and then gaining clarity on the complications which have, might have led to that problem and what questions that need to be answered through the data, you know, through analyzing the data that can help solve this problem. If one were to think about every business problem and every analytical problem in this form of a structured manner, and then leverage their analytical and technology skills to kind of parse trends and patterns from the data, I think it definitely could help in deriving the right insights that can enable effective decision making. Thank you. And just one more time, just for audience, we'll make sure you get it. Can you give us the the acronym again? It was, was it S? It was SCQA. So it is situation, complication, question, and answer. It's called the SCQA framework. I love that. I've used it quite a bit in a lot of uh, different business problems that I've worked on. So situation, complication, question, answer. That's right. That's a great framework you can use. There's others out there. I've seen others as well, but it always helps to have a framework to help guide you because I think we've all been there. I know I have. It's very easy to get lost in the data and go down those rabbit holes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Something to guide us back to, if there is a time-tested framework that exists out there, I think it's worth exploring, is what I've, is what I've learned in, in, in my career. So definitely, this is one of the ones which has helped me a lot, for sure. I agree. If it's been around a long time or a lot of people are using it, there's usually a reason you should at least look at it. You may go in a different direction, but it's good to know about it. Next question here. Can you tell me about a time in your career when you experience what I call a strategic moment, an aha moment, where a strategic insight later empowered you to drive changes within the organization or to drive a change? I think, you know, one of the things which I have kind of, it's been, it's been core to, to the way that I've operated as an FPA professional is to really believe in the power of, you know, processes and standardization. So I think my example of that aha moment would be, you know, when I was working a couple of years back, actually, when I was in the e-commerce space, I was part of this, uh, you know, pretty lean kind of a team that was responsible for driving, uh, you know, financial planning, reporting analysis for the holiday season for this e-commerce company that I was working in. So when I say holiday season, you can think about a time period, which is around mid of October to, let's say, Christmas, which is like the peak season for any e-commerce company, right? Because that's the shopping season. So this team, it, it, it was, when I was part of this team, it was an intense work stream because, you know, we used to have executive reviews. And when I say executive reviews, like it was the GMs and the VPs and the SVPs that we had to present to almost three times a day during that time frame of about 45 days, wherein we used to walk, you know, the execs through the business performance, both from a top line as well as from a variable expenses standpoint. And, you know, we had to come up with the forecast for the next couple of days or weeks, right, to be able to kind of give direction in, in, in terms of where are we heading towards, right, you know, from a, from a quarterly performance standpoint. And the insights, uh, you know, from that my team used to work on, like I could see how they're being used to kind of make decisions, right, whether it be around marketing strategy, whether it be around, you know, deals and promos, whether it's around product sourcing or, you know, where do we place the product on the website. Uh, so it was pretty critical to having like, a you, you know, the, the insights from my team team were pretty critical to having a successful holiday season. Now, it might sound surprising, but, you know, for some of the days, like especially around, you know, those those peak shopping days like Thanksgiving and Black Friday, I remember, you know, we used to have an exec stand up as early as 6.30 in the morning. And so when this entire process started, what I'm I'm going with this is for the first two or three days, you know, we really struggled to get the insights on time, you know, in in a format that is extremely exec friendly, but also something that delivered the insights to be able to make 
business decisions, right? And we tried a couple of things, but I think what really stuck and worked well for us for the remainder of the holiday season was aligning on a standard set of KPIs and reporting modules that looked at the different cuts of the business that you know the execs wanted to look at and we thought would provide value from. And we used that on a consistent basis to assess the business performance, right? So we almost automated that. And how that helped us is that it freed up a lot of time for us for us to actually work on ad hoc deep dive analyses on specific areas that needed that that double click, which we weren't able to get to because we were just like so consumed with creating these uh, set of reports to be able to present to the you know to the exec team twice a day. So once we kind of had this standardized framework, it provided a consistent framework to measure the performance on a continual basis. So one, we got the time to actually work on ad hoc analysis. Second, we got a consistent framework to kind of measure the performance on a continual basis. And it also led to, you know, effective and fast, you know, kind of decisions being made in the organization, right? So from, so my learning, which I think was a strategic learning for me was based on that experience is if you establish a process and if you're able to drive standardization, it really works. And it's probably the most effective tool to drive effective decision-making in an organization. And it's especially important, I think, for FP&A professionals, since we are at the core of that planning and budgeting exercise. You know, since then, I've always encouraged my teams to, you know, stay agile. I think that's really important as an FP&A team, but yet, you know, drive processes and standardization where needed so that we are able to drive efficiency. So I think that's how I think about that. That's my strategic aha moment. Thank you. I appreciate that. And there's a lot to be said for driving standardization and efficiency to free up time and how you realized it, focusing on just those key metrics and really being diligent on those can allow you to dig in and find other trends. So I appreciate that answer. Sounds like a great experience and you've carried that uh, with you throughout your career. So we're coming up toward the end of our time. So we're going to do the get to know you section. It's a little bit of a kind of a lightning round, so to speak. I have uh, actually five questions here for you. One's going to be a little bit of a surprise. So we'll put you on the spot for a second, but you get no more than 30 seconds to answer each of these. What is something interesting about you not many people know? Something we would generally not find online about you? I think it would be my interest and liking for the Indian classical music. From a young age, I have been practicing tabla. So tabla is like the the Indian version of the drums, basically. Well, take your word for it. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, post COVID, you know, when we, when we started kind of having this hybrid work, work from home, work, work in person kind of hybrid environment, you know, I actually started spending a lot of time getting back to Indian classical music, uh, not just as a, as a tabla player or the Indian version of drums player, but actually starting to learn singing, Indian classical music singing. So I'll confess, I'm, I'm a beginner, so I don't, I don't definitely want to be seen singing just as yet in your own public audience, but it's a lot, it's a, it's a lot of fun, uh, you know, doing that outside of my work. And it's something, you know, almost nobody outside of my wife and my daughter know, know about, or maybe my parents. Yeah. And I appreciate sure. And I was just going to put you on the spot and ask you to sing a song, but we'll wait till your <laughs> next time on FPNA. So keep practicing. When we have you back on FPNA today, I expect a song. <laughs> If you could meet one person in the world, dead or alive, who are you going to meet? Oh, it has to be it has to be Steve Jobs. He's an inspiration for countless folks, you know, around the world, including including myself. 
and you know beyond just being like a profound you know technologist or an innovator i i think what i kind of draw inspiration from him is his passion to you know i've seen bunch of his videos on youtube right and what you can see in that person is his relentless passion to understand consumer behavior and reflect that in the products that he creates like there is a purpose there is a great sense of understanding and there is a great sense of purpose behind every product that apple created uh, or Steve Jobs created right and it was based on his understanding of consumer behavior consumer psychology so his products were you know not just functional but they were amazingly intuitive to the customers so he's an inspiration for me so i would say definitely go with steve jobs on that question all right thank you so next question what is the last thing you googled looked up on youtube or used generative ai to answer about finance kind of fpna or excel you know it's funny you ask that because yesterday evening i was trying to kind of learn something more about this one methodology using which you can do comparative analysis on a questionnaire based data i was like how do i even begin to figure out what are the statistical techniques to to use for this and that's what i used you know conversational or generative ai for because i was like and the, the best part about it is you can just ask him a random question saying hey i'm trying to do this tell me you know like a statistical approach to to be able to figure this out and that's that's the last thing which i did it's not funny but it's the latest of what i what i used gen gen ai or conversational ai for not gen ai but conversational ai for appreciate it what's your favorite excel function or feature it has to be index match <laughs> all right i guess i'll give you that one no, i'm just kidding <laughs> you know it's a uh, index match I, i i think i've used it so much uh you know power user at excel so i've seen the power that index match has in a lot of what i've done or a lot of dashboards excel based dashboards that i've that i've created in the past so all right and so here's the bonus question since you're at adobe what's your favorite adobe product adobe express the one that i currently support good answer <laughs> i thought you might say something else but we'll we'll give you that one so here as we wrap up we just have two questions left for you so this question is What do you see as the most critical skill for FP&A professionals today? What's the most important thing they need to have? I think four four skills which we've, you know, kind of talked about before. It's business acumen, skill at technology, being able to be analytically strong, and then strong business partnering skills. So it's I think those four if they have, I think they'll, they they are set up and they have a strong foundation to being a successful FP&A professional. So last question if someone wants to reach out to you or get a hold of you after they listen to this episode what's the best way to do that uh it would be you know hitting me up on linkedin because i'm fairly active on my linkedin and you'll easily be able to find me with my first and last name on linkedin so if anyone wants to connect with me that would be the best place to do that yeah i'm guessing there's not a ton of people with your uh, first and last name on linkedin you know you'd be surprised Paul there are is there a pretty good number Yeah, the part of India that I come from, you would find a lot of people with actually the the same first and last name. So, having said that, maybe you can add a finance next to next to my name in when you search me on LinkedIn, and then probably I'll be the only one. So that's a quicker way of finding me. There's definitely ways to narrow that down for sure. We are we're <laughs> exactly. all learning that in searches. Well, I really appreciate you carving out some time today. I know you're very busy. I know you have a You have a family and a job and all those things. So thank you for taking you know, 45 minutes to chat here with us and I look forward to releasing this here in the near future to our audience. So thanks for being on the show. It's been a great conversation Paul. So thank you so much for the opportunity and being able to kind of share my thoughts with your with your listeners. So thank you. 